I know we all want to do good in the world, but can you do well while you're doing good? Hey, we're going to talk about that. Do you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Well, we're going to do something kind of special today. You've heard me talk about our upcoming cruise, the Ultimate Advantage Cruise, in February of 2017. Our theme for that is living well, doing good. And I have in the studio with me today one of our speakers on that cruise, my good friend, Dr. Chris McCluskey. We're going to talk about what does that mean to live well and do good. Now, our sponsor today is Harry's. You know what? We're going to go ahead and let me tell you a little bit about Harry's and then we'll go right into our topic. Well, I want to mention my friends at Harry's. You know that I start my day off every day shaving with my Harry's razor. Just an amazing experience. You know, it's one of those things that we as guys do. It's not particularly something we probably look forward to, but it's like brushing your teeth. It's a great way to feel good, look good, ready to start the day. And I know that usually the experience is to go to the drugstore, look at those high-priced things behind a plexiglass case. You don't have to do that. With Harry's, you can get them shipped right to you. You get those German-engineered five-blade cartridges for a close, comfortable shave. Factory direct prices come. They cut out the middleman. They own the factory. They're selling their blades at what's going to be half the price of the leading brands. So you can start off. With a set called the Truman, it's a great option for new customers, an amazing deal. For just $15, you get a razor handle, moisturizing shave cream, and three of Harry's five-blade German-engineered razors. Plus, there's a special offer for you fans of 48 Days. Harry's will give you $5 off your first purchase when you visit harrys.com slash 48 days. So just go to harrys.com slash 48 days right now to redeem your offer. Well... When we talk about cruising, you hear me talk about that a lot because Joanne and I enjoy cruising. We go often. Uh, This last year, Joanne went three times. I went twice, but we go anyway. And every other year, we invite friends to come along with us. So in February of 2017, we're going to be going again from Fort Lauderdale down through Puerto Rico and down to some of the cool islands down there. doesn't matter what they are. They're all nice and warm and sunny and great place to hang out. But we're going to take advantage of the days at sea to just share some ideas around this topic that I have titled Living Well, Doing Good. Now, we've got kind of a play on words here, I realize, because uh, I'm in Tennessee, and around here sometimes English language gets used in pretty strange ways. I've got a, a good friend who leaves me messages on my phone quite frequently, and he always says, Hey, Dan, hope you're doing good. Well, he, I know what he really means is I hope you're doing well, meaning you know, healthy, doing well, having a good life. But he says doing good. Doing good means that I am doing something to help other people. And I love his message because I do hope that I am, in fact, doing good. We want to do both. We want to do both of those. Now, here's where it gets tricky. A lot of times, people who are faith-based, people who just want to do something humanitarian or of service, Assume that when we do good, that we're somehow going to suffer personally. 
You know, that by doing good, we're going to have an empty cup ourselves. We're going to eat beans and rice all the time because we have this heart of service when I do good. Well, our theme for this cruise is living well, doing good. I think sometimes we miss an important point when we assume that we give best when we have nothing ourselves. So we're going to talk about that. And I've got, again, as I mentioned in the opening, Dr. Chris McCloskey here with me. And we're going to discuss some of the topics we're going to be covering on this cruise just to get you thinking. Now, whether you come with us on the cruise or not, that's another issue. We'd love to see you there. And we'll tell you how to get, how to get connected with us. But we're going to just talk through some of the principles that we're going to be covering there together. Chris, great to have you here with me today. Dan, this is a kick, isn't it? It's super to be here. Usually we'd be talking by telephone since I live in Missouri and you're here in Tennessee, but I'm out for the Mastermind, 48 Days Mastermind gathering here at the sanctuary this week and had some other business meetings in town, so just hanging around for a few extra days and... What a kick that we can say, hey, let's just get together in the studio and do an episode together. Absolutely. Well, and that's a fun topic, one that you and I have talked about many times. Um, I've been a guest on your podcast as well. Yep. Uh, Tell people the name of your podcast, Chris. Yeah, I'm at uh, Professional Christian Coaching Today. Our institute that I run is called Professional Christian Coaching Institute, and the name pretty much tells you what we do. We train people in professional-grade, distinctly Christian coaching, uh, coaching such as you do here. But you know, Dan, we're aligned with the uh, standards and definitions of coaching uh, of the International Coach Federation. ICF is uh, a large uh, certifying and accrediting body. And so our school is a Christian school that trains practitioners to work with Christian as well as non-Christian clientele, just in professional grade coaching according to those ICF standards. And we have a podcast connected with it, as I said, Professional Christian Coaching Today. So yeah, it's been fun to have you on there. And it's Good to do turnabout here. <laughs> well, I think the last time I was on with you, we talked about one of the first topics I've got on our little list here, that being, should I be in ministry or be profitable, uh, especially with coaches, but with people just in general, sometimes they see this as a choice. Should I be responsible and provide a good living for my family, or should I do something about which I'm passionate and just forget about the money? Or should I be involved with a worthy cause as really filling out my life's mission? Well, you know, my response to that, it's yes, yes, and yes. Yes, yes, and yes. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Where where is the decision to be made here? Yes, to all of those. That's right. Mm -hmm. So when we say, should you be in ministry or be profitable? Yes, it's, it's both of those. Talk to us a little bit about what you've experienced in helping people understand that you can have food on the table and still be involved in ministry. It's one of the toughest mindsets that we encounter often with the students who come into our school. Our students are typically midlifers, kind of like a lot of the people that you train here at the sanctuary in the various programs with coaching mastery and such. They're in their 40s to 60s, and many times they are struggling in that place of frustration of knowing they have certain giftings, a strong sense of calling. They have passion about some very exciting things. And like someone said to me not very long ago, we were talking about them hitting this built-in ceiling of about $100,000 or so from the various things that they were doing. And they really wanted to generate more than that. And so I I looked at saying, well, just what would it take to pull it from $100,000 to $200,000? And they looked at me immediately and said this, Chris, I am never going to make $200,000 a year because there are too many things I love doing that don't make money. 
Hmm, interesting. <laughs> and you know what my response was. Hmm, could we challenge that mindset with a little tweaking of that? There are many things I love to do that I haven't figured how to, how to make money at yet. And just that simple shifting of the mindset, and of course, what we rehearse, what we tell ourselves out loud, I'm never going to be able to do that. Well, you're probably right. You probably won't be able to. But the problem is not because you couldn't, nor that it would be wrong, nor that Scripture tells us never to do such a thing, but instead, the battle is won and lost in our own minds. We've set our course for ourselves, and we're going to to see an either-or decision where there really is not one. We tend to speak our own reality. And and what we what you also alluded to there is we have in America the mindset that time equals money. So if you're working forty hours a week making a hundred thousand and you really want to make two hundred thousand, the immediate thought is, Well, I don't want to work eighty hours a week. That would compromise other areas of success. Mm-hmm. But when we get into these unique work models we have that we can take advantage of today. There's not that kind of connection. There's not a direct cause and effect correlation between time and income. Mm-hmm. And, and in this world that you and I live, where we're talking about information and knowledge, you can leverage that in some really unique ways where you can make money while you sleep. And a lot of people double their incomes when they reduce their time by leveraging the things they're already doing. Now, I know this, this this is a little foreign concept for somebody who's used to just being paid by the hour, but as soon as you come out of that model and look at projects or concepts or produce products of any kind, you open the door to having new income kind of models. And one of the things that's a favorite topic of mine, as you know, is this talking about giving from a full cup. And when when I talk about that, it's never to position this as being greedy or self-serving or egotistical, but really to have all of your best gifts that God has given you fully available. And when I see people who are depleted, they're frustrated, they're wrung out physically, and they just can't, and, and they're broke. Mm-hmm. And then they think, well, this must be the most godly thing to do. Really? I mean, is that going to be attractive to other people? So there's a little demonstration that you've seen me do where I have a little shot glass and then I have a goblet on top of a saucer and then I have a big trifle bowl. Each one behind them, I have a, a wine bottle and I demonstrate, you know, with a little tiny gobbler, little tiny shot glass, even if you fill that with the available resources, it's gone very quickly because it's so small. Mm -hmm. So you may have a neighbor who is out of work and the rent needs to be paid and you'd like to do that, but your cup is empty. It's hard to do that. On the other end, we have this big trifle bowl and yeah, gee, you got the $15,000 house and a condo in the French Riviera and, you know, just financed the Ferrari for 10 years and you pour all the resources in and your cup still isn't full. Well, that's not an admirable position at all. And it's kind of like the three bears, I guess. We end up in the middle where this is just right. What we want is that goblet that is beautiful. We take the resources, we pour into that, but we continue pouring even when it's full. So there's the abundance of overflow. So yes, we fill our cup. So we're at our very best in every way that we can be, and then serve and give out of the abundance of that. You know, I'll put there, I've got a little video, a little five minute video that really explains that more fully. And I'll put that in the show notes again, but you want to add anything to that? 
Yeah, because you're referring to a beautiful, uh, that, that video you're talking about it, it represents visually the symbolism of that, uh, that ceremony. I guess it's, it's called the Havdalah, and that is a, a Jewish ceremony. Of course, Jesus is Jewish, and our scriptures come from the Jewish background. And somehow, we, in a lot of Western Christian mindsets, have come to believe that scripture just teaches against money. We don't read that the love of money is the root of all evil, we just read that money is the root of all evil. And we've got this real tug of war internally with making more than just enough for whatever my needs are. And then, of course, that leaves us with that little tiny shot glass. We don't really have enough overflow to be ministering and pouring into others. And in in thinking about this morning's podcast, I went to my scriptures and immediately pulled one of the many scriptures that we refer to in in the Institute when we're training in this. It's Paul writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy And he says this, which just, it not only hits the point we're covering here, but it even ties into our theme for today on living well, doing good. He says to to Timothy, command those who are rich to give away everything they have. No, that's not what he says. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant and not to put hope in wealth which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us everything for our enjoyment. And then he says this, command them to do good. Mm -hmm. Hmm. The wealthy, command them to do, that's a good command. It is. And they are in a position to do far more good because of their wealth than what others can do. Now, there are many different kinds of good, and they're all wonderful and rich and needed in the kingdom. But when you are a wealthy person and discerning the good that God would call you to do because of that position, not in spite of it, not once you get rid of it, not give it all away because that's the most righteous thing and all Christians should be scrapping for their next meal, but instead utilizing your wealth well, he says, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share in this way. They will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. It's a great passage, isn't it? It is. It is indeed. Straight out of our scriptures, huh? Commanding you know, the rich not to make themselves poor, but to do good with the riches that they have. Mm-hmm. Well, the next topic here, we're, we're going to just bounce around on some, and we'll have more time on the cruise, of course, to unpack these and have discussions with everybody who's there. But this idea of doing good without damaging the recipient. Now, my son, Jared, has spent a lot of years in Africa And we've really been pretty close up with this idea of just giving to people, thinking that we're really helping them. So we give them shoes or food or place to live. And what we do is teach them to be dependent on that. It really doesn't change their life significantly. We teach them to expect that the next year and the next year and the next year. And of course, we've seen that in our own country. Mm -hmm. We now have seventh and eighth generations of people who have been on welfare and have never known any other life than that, than to expect the government to take care of their needs. We teach them to be dependent. How do we practice doing good when there are people that we really want to help? What are some ways to help them effectively that in fact equip them 
rather than just enable them. It was so fun walking in here to the sanctuary today because the first person I saw was your son, Jared. He's here visiting again, and it was just great to catch up with him. And we started into a conversation about his love and passion for the Lakota Indians in particular, and some of their spirituality and love and stewardship of the land and and attention to things that are very, very much in keeping with the teachings and lifestyle of Jesus. And so as we were talking about the Lakota Indians, I was able to respond back to him. Do you know I was privileged to do do a 20-hour contracted training program with caseworkers who were working with the Lakota Indians and and Dakota Indians uh, on the reservations because of the number of serious dysfunctions that kind of are bred by being placed in a reservation and, you know, all things are supposedly being given to you. And instead, what we've done is we've created a very handicapped culture of persons who are looking for the next handout and don't have a value, a great value anymore oftentimes for hard work and the payoff that should come from hard work and such. And we trained those workers who already had relationship with these Lakota and Dakota Indians, but were not seeing great result from their various outside-in kinds of efforts in the very thing that you and I teach, which is coaching. Meet them not with answers, not with a handout, not with solutions and advice, but meet them with questions in their space and invite them to begin engaging in a question-oriented manner with the challenges before them and the opportunities before them. And what could be possible here? And how could you make that happen? And who could help you? And when might you be able to do that? And what other resources would you need to be tapping? A coach approach to really, as, as you and I teach so oftentimes, anything is, I think, one of the greatest gifts that we can give someone instead of an outside-in solution. We reach into their very being and seek from an inside-out, kind of a calling forth, a calling up, an exploring of what's possible. And they become engaged much more fully with their lives and with themselves. You know, it's so much easier to just give somebody something and walk away. Mm. I mean, we're infamous for our missions trips other parts of the world where we waltz in, you know, we're there for 10 days, give them an abundance of things and leave and pat ourselves on the back with the good work that we've done. And boy, right, right there, right there is part of the problem, isn't it? That actually, though, it seems a loving thing may have been more about us than about. Oh, you think Mm -hmm. you think we can jump online and look at the selfies of people who have in fact, virtually patted themselves on the back for the good work that they've done. But when we think about, think through some of those things. So if we go into a town, if we go into an area in the Sudan and we know there's abject poverty there and we drive in with a big truck and it's got clothing on there and it's got food and it's got shoes and we distribute it to everybody there. We have probably totally destroyed some very, small fragile economics in that in that in, in town in exactly. that community so the guy who was repairing shoes as a way to eke out a living is now totally put out of business That's right the guy who is growing a little garden or has a cow and is selling a few products from that is wiped out we go in and undermine the very things that we want to nurture to make them more self-sufficient mm-hmm. How do we do that? Maybe even not just in other cultures, but how have you seen that played out even with our neighbors and those people we care about 
right around us and how could we do it more effectively? Do you know what comes to mind? I did a keynote talk at the Convene Conference last year out in Newport Beach, California. These are Christian business owners, entrepreneurs all, or at least Christian executives of large organizations. Whether they're Christian or non-Christian businesses themselves, these are the persons who run them, and they all hold the faith. And so I went out and talked on leader as coach there, but one of the other keynote speakers was a gentleman who uh, heads up Hope International, and they are a uh, a micro-funding entrepreneurial kind of a of a uh, a loan service. Now, they have ministry as their reason for being, but what they principally do is go into those very same places, whether it's the Sudan or in inner parts of India or uh, East Asia or wherever they may be in the world, and they're looking to connect at a coaching kind of a find out what the needs are, who are the people that are already doing good things here, and how can we, through capitalistically-minded entrepreneurially oriented efforts help this culture begin to help themselves through the things that value hard work and that pay the natural results that should come from that, and we build a real strong internal economic engine for them instead of just coming in and, as you said, trying to trying to hand out and do good and actually wind up doing terrible, terrible damage. It's Peter Greer. Hope International Powerful Ministry, but they have spent years and years in trying to understand how do we fuel and fund these kind of things so that our well-intentioned efforts don't inadvertently wind up undercutting the very people we're trying to serve. You know, Peter Greer is a real spokesman in that space, CEO of a nonprofit organization that was doing ministry in very traditional ways, but then he wrote a book, you know, the spiritual dangers of doing good, which yep. is just amazing. And I'll put a link in our show notes. There's a document out there, a short document that he did as well. Stop helping us, <laughs> which is really counterintuitive to what we think. You know, we were thinking we're doing good out there, but he says, just like you were explaining, a lot of the things that we're doing just simply undermine ways that would truly help those people. I think we need to be quick to say, too, that they are, the word I used a moment ago there was well-intentioned. I think our intentions are good. Yes, sometimes we get in the way in our own insecurities or or need for being ooed over and odd over on Facebook or whatever, get in the way, and, and, and we are patting ourselves on the back. But I think that the average person, and here I'm speaking just Christian or not anybody, I think the average person does desire to do good in the world. It's just that oftentimes those well-intentioned but misdirected efforts do wind up not only not doing good, they actually bring serious harm. And it's terribly important to be stepping back from the desire itself first and asking, what are the better ways to go about this instead of just kind of charging in? One of the organizations that I have been involved just as many, many other people is Kiva. Kiva.org. Mm-hmm. I love their business model. So the model there is that, so we've got a guy in Guatemala who wants to repair cars and he needs $120 for tools so that he can do that more effectively. Multiple people go in and give $25, $50, whatever to help him get his tools. And then he repays that. So it's a micro loan, but to put him in business not just as a gift to right. give to him, to put him in business. I love going on there. And, you know, there was a lady in like Honduras who wanted to have two washing machines and she was effectively the town laundromat. There you go. Which people would pay her a quarter or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So <clears throat> I funded that. 
put in a few dollars as a lot of other people did as well. And then you watch, you know, then I get these reports, you know, that Mary has repaid a dollar and 64 cents and that comes in. Now I put in $200 probably six years ago. I don't think I've ever put in more, but I keep going back in because what an amazing concept that money comes back in. And I'm told, Dan, you have $80 in your account. And I go in and again, select somebody to fund their business startup, not just to hand up, fund their business startup. They repay it. And it really puts them on the road to their own success. Isn't this really just the saying we're all so familiar with? If I give you a fish, I feed you for a day. But if I teach you to fish, or in this case, if I facilitate the finances to help you be able to to fish, I feed you for a lifetime, and I impact your whole family and your whole community. The ripple effects of... Well, there's a book that we use at the Institute um, at the very beginning, because as I said, many of our students come in still having this internal battle knowing that they want to establish a business, but fearing, uh, like, they know there's a a likelihood of self-sabotage because they're afraid of doing too well. (laughs) They're afraid of too much success. And so, as Scripture says, you know, a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. So they get this kind of one foot on the gas pedal and one foot on the brake as they're entering into their entrepreneurial venture. So the book we use right out of the chutes is a real simple book. It's probably not even... 85 pages long. It reads almost like just a just a nightstand uh, devotional or something by Dr. Wayne Grudem, but it's called Business for the Glory of God. And it is just a manifesto kind of a statement about the importance of addressing that mindset and saying, wait a minute, if everything else in life is supposed to be done for the glory of God and all this service that you're going to, how is it that you've relegated business and the establishment of business and the running of a good business as somehow against that, that that it's only going to be glorifying to God if you take all the money from it and donate it to charity or something like that, that it can't actually be a wildly successful business. That that just, there is no connection there between the two. And so that's where we start them out. If that double-mindedness is in there, that push-pull effect, you're going to be running into that at every turn for the next many years as you struggle to launch your business instead of just setting off like a rocket and, and continuing on forward to the thing you feel you're really called to and that you're passionate about and allowing it to grow wildly so that more and more good can come from it. Well, you've really kind of crossed over there where we're looking not just at the motivations for giving and the uh, the positioning of the recipient, but the mindset of us as the potential givers. Mm-hmm. We all have, and we've talked about this in our mastermind, we all have that upper limit challenge <laughs> where we have a sense of what we deserve. And I see this played out and have for years and years and working with people who are making career changes. You know, if we were working in a job and you're making $40,000 a year, we anticipate getting a three to 4% increase, you know, kind of a cost of living increase. So your income goes up to 41.5 the next year. We can handle that. It's kind of like the frog in the kettle. There's little changes we can handle. Okay. But we can even handle if the boss gives us a $500 bonus at Christmas time or something. It's like, Hey, isn't that great? You know, we can do some fun little things. But when we step out of the traditional work model Mm -hmm. and get into these things that are more creative, non-traditional entrepreneurial, what if you write a book and all of a sudden your income is up 10 times or 20 times? And we see this played out where we find somebody in abject poverty living down in Mississippi, but we realize 
this 18 year old kid has a really strong arm for foot for throwing a football. Mm -hmm. So we bring him to Nashville, sign him with the Tennessee Titans, give him a $10 million bonus. Six months later, he sabotaged his career beyond repair. He spent the money and more and he's back where he came from because his sense of deserving did not match the reality of what he was given. Now, how do we, handle that in this environment where sometimes we are set up to be a vessel through which blessings can flow, but we block that. But we gum up the works, don't we? We gum up the works Mm -hmm. because of our own sense of not deserving more than we're used to having. Not deserving it, or again, back to the idea of it just not being right. It's not okay. Uh, Maybe this is more of a Christian thing than in other settings, I don't know, but I surely run into it all the time that there is just this internal, I'm not sure that's really all that good. Remember, Jesus was a poor person and, you know, had no place to lay his head and all. I think that's really the model we're supposed to follow here. Dan, you know, I'm just coming through uh, Franklin here now on our way back from a family vacation. Rachel and I, as you and Joanne do. We travel a lot. We enjoy it. We've homeschooled our kids, and so we have. they've grown up jetting all over the United States and overseas, and the reason we can do that is largely because I run a successful business from home and have done that for all of their childhoods growing up. So here we are coming back from a couple of weeks down in Destin, Florida. It's about seven hours from there up to here, so this was our midpoint, and then the rest of the family went on home to Missouri about another seven hours from here the other day, and I stayed here to to have these meetings. But while we were down there on vacation, of course, I did some teaching of some of the teleclasses that I still have my hand in there at the Institute, and some administrative things. In other words, it was kind of a working vacation. It's what you do when you're an entrepreneur, because the whole world is your office place, potentially. That's right. You've got flexibility, freedom. Talk about living well. You've got portabilities and freedoms that nobody who is in a nine-to-five job working as an employee for somebody ever even thinks about. They're always looking at, well, how many vacation days do I have left? Can I get some paid uh, sick time here? Do we have a paternity or maternity leave? When you are an entrepreneur, you are so much more in control of things. But there we are on this vacation. I've got all seven of my kids and my daughter's uh, husband, our oldest, is is married now. So uh, James is on the trip as well. We're around the pool. And James and I have been having these conversations about entrepreneurial mindset. Because he married into this family. He saw the way Alyssa was raised. He sees the way the rest of the kids are raised. He sees the flexibility and portability. He's attracted. But he grew up the way most of us do. Just, you know, get a good education. Why? So you can get a good job. Go work for somebody else. And he got the entrepreneurial bug when he went to the escaping Shawshank thing that you and Carrie Oberrunner did, what, a year or so ago, right? Right. In the Columbus, Ohio area, escaping your own prisons, your own Shawshank in your mind. Well, James goes there. He's a newly married man. And uh, Alyssa said, you know, yep, we're going to put some of our hard-earned money behind this, honey. We're going to get you up there. And what did he address there? Principally, mindset. So here he is with us on family vacation now, enjoying soaking up the sun. He's poolside. Literally, this happened while we were down there. He's poolside. He checks his cell phone, because he's used to seeing me check my cell phone and come back and say, hey, just made another couple thousand dollars off of something, you know, product or service that's mailbox money coming in while we're vacationing. He says, Dad, I just had $400 dump into my account here from a client I'm working with. Not only did that happen, but I hooked up with a, uh, a neuromuscular massage therapist while I was down there to have some deep tissue work done on, on some uh, injuries I have. And uh, I had found her on the web. Her website was not dynamic. It didn't adjust to, this, to the um, 
to the cell phone. And I know that James's business that he just established, Fresh Eyes, is established to help people with tech issues. He comes and looks at your business with fresh eyes. And so I said, you know, James, give me your business card. I'm going to this appointment with this massage therapist. I think there might be a gig here. And sure enough, we come home from vacation. He not only made from the clients he's already landed since that Shawshank thing less than a year ago, he secured a new client from my massage therapist there. This is living well. And it's doing good. For them as young couples, it's doing good because it's giving them a a foot from which they're going to be able to start off in a much better place than an awful lot of their, their peers are right now in the college age. Yeah, that's a cool story. Isn't that cool? It is. <laughs> and, it, and it covers so much of what, you know, I talk about week after week, that subtle blend of work and play. So people looking in from the outside can't tell which we're doing. So there you are on a family vacation, which really is a vacation, mm-hmm. and yet still connected, have things in place so that you're making money, what we call Swiss dollars, sales while I sleep soundly. And it kind of opens <laughs> the door right. on a, uh, just a couple other things here I want to touch on. But one of those are the new business models that we have available to us. We used to think that either you're a nonprofit, you know, where everybody recognizes what that is. So you're a nonprofit. That implies, I mean, the, the, the word nonprofit. That means it doesn't make any sense. Don't you dare make too much money. That's right. (laughs) It makes no sense business wise, but hopefully people will feel sorry for us and give us money. So you have that, or you're just one more, you know, materialistic capitalistic business out there. Well, those lines have softened a lot and we have terms like social entrepreneurship and we have ethical capitalism, B corporations. Mm -hmm. There's a whole lot of things that are kind of softening the lines and even organizations like Pure Vita Coffee or Tom's Shoes, people are familiar with that. Very, very uh, giving model, obviously. You buy a pair of shoes, they give one to somebody else. Now, incidentally, Tom was just profiled in the new issue of Inc. Magazine. I saw that. He's changing his model. That's right. Because he's realized that in as much as he really has a heart of service, just giving people shoes doesn't change their life. It teaches them to expect another pair to be given to them next year right. when they need them. So he's making some modifications, but that's, that started out as a for-profit business. That was not a, a non-profit and expecting donations. But I love the ways that we have today available where we can do good, but structure it in a way that you don't need to ask people for money, just make it profitable. In some ways, you know, when somebody says, in some ways, anytime somebody asks for money, it's a first sign of failure in a business. I heard Mark Cuban talk about that recently. When you ask for money, it's a first sign of failure. So that means going to the bank or looking for venture capital or investment mm-hmm. from your uncle mm-hmm. or asking for donations. And a lot of people have ended up with what they call nonprofit organizations because they never figured out how to be strategic about how to make it work economically on its own. I always approach it in that way first. How could this work on its own? Yes. You don't want to have to ask other people for Mm-mm. money if there's any way in the world to avoid it. And in most cases, there's plenty of ways to avoid there's it. There's plenty of ways. That's right. You can monetize most anything, lots and lots of different ways. It's fun to do so. I'll give a couple of examples of what we do here at the Institute to illustrate the points that we're hitting on. Because, again, these are themes that you and I are going to be addressing on this cruise, which excites me. As soon as Rachel and I heard what the theme for the cruise was going to be when we were on the last cruise with you, 
we, we said, yep, we're in, we're in, because that's that's where we live, that's so much what we're about. Now, the Professional Christian Coaching Institute is a for-profit entity, of course, and it is an educational and training facility. When persons register for any course there, a percentage of every registration tuition that we receive goes to support the work of crisis pregnancy centers. Now, that's that's a great, very simple, traditional model. There's nothing all that unusual about that. It is social entrepreneurism. It is taking some of your profits and purposely pricing yourself so that you can freely and joyfully give those back. We do it as a tithe between us and the Lord. I don't normally speak about it publicly, and I'm not bragging here, but it's illustrative of the point. But one of the things that I enjoy far more, as you can imagine, when I explain it here in a moment, than just the funding directly financially of that, is that because we are a successful training institute, and we have more than enough coming in to cover expenses, we actually then can take the training that we offer, and every single time that we offer the introductory course, which can have up to 30 people in the virtual classroom, up to three of those slots, in other words, 10% of the persons who are training are executive directors and or frontline counselors at crisis pregnancy centers. Mm. They're receiving that training at no cost to them because they're able to then go back to their ministry and take a coach approach with women and, and couples in crisis pregnancies. Guess what happens statistically? When instead of taking a counseling approach with somebody in a crisis pregnancy, telling them what to do, guilting them into what they should do, helping them to understand the trauma of abortion and whatever else. If we take an outside-in, pressure-based kind of an approach, we know that the success rate of crisis pregnancy centers in avoiding abortions are not really very high. And we know that oftentimes, and the result is, we just go against the abortion clinics and try to blast them and take another aggressive approach there. When you instead work within a crisis pregnancy center that is meeting somebody at a place of need, place of great vulnerability, and instead of advising, you take a coach approach meet them where they are, and ask questions. Don't tell. Don't advise. Explore. Empathize. Get them to call forth what the internal struggle is, what they see as the options, how they would rank order their, their, their leaning toward one or the other. Do you know that the success rate of the crisis pregnancy centers that take a coach approach, Dan, it is nearly 100% in guarding against the likelihood of an abortion. Mm. Now, that's something from my world of of Christian service and ministry. I realize some of your listeners may be very pro-abortion or may at least not think that's such an exciting thing, but the point is, it's again a socially responsible or socially oriented entrepreneurial venture that's saying, we're not only going to fund the things that we support financially, we're going to utilize the good that we're doing in the world and do more through it by equipping and empowering people, that's not possible. We can't have those people in there at no cost, no generation of income for us, unless that class was already making profit. That's right. That's right. That's the point. You have a heart for doing good, and rightfully so, but instead of putting 100% of your efforts just there, you have an economic model that makes sense that allows you to do that freely through your own efforts, without then looking for somebody else to feel sorry for you or think that you're doing good and write you a check. I love that. Mm. That's, a, that's a great example. Well, just one last thing here. Chris, and I know this was really, this is going to be a topic that you speak about personally on the cruise. Again, the cruise is going to be, we're going to be leaving February 12th, 2017 from Fort Lauderdale, Florida. 
Got some beautiful pictures up. You can find that at 48days.com slash ultimate advantage cruise, or just go to our live events. It's in there with coaching with excellence and all the other things we'll be doing next year. But you're going to be personally leading us through thinking about living well, emotionally, physically, and spiritually. You know, we, we have talked a lot about financially, but living well as way goes way beyond what your financial portfolio looks like. Doesn't it indeed? In it, fact, of the various measures, that may be the last one oh, that we'd really no. place high value as, on. Huh? As is success. Mm-hmm. When, when somebody says, this person's really successful, I don't want to see how big a house they're living in. I want to look at their life and see, is that a life that I want to model? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, we'll be talking quite a bit about that. There are many kinds of wealth and there are many kinds of poverty. If I had to choose my areas of indebtedness in life, and I don't like to be indebted to anybody for anything, but if I had to choose my areas of indebtedness, I'll take financial debt over relational debt or spiritual debt or experience debt even, the opportunities to make memories and to celebrate the fullness of life, whatever my financial position might be at the time. But uh, yeah, we'll be addressing that and looking at a model that I use that uh, actually uh, I have talked about on our podcast before. It's a, a balanced model for life looking at work and worship and play and the importance of each of those finding their own place of, of uh, not static balance, but a fluidity of a valued balance in your life, that when you're working, you're really working. When you're worshiping, you're really worshiping. When you're playing, you're really playing. You're fully present wherever you are, instead of kind of, well, I'm working, but actually I'm kind of thinking about the ball game this weekend. And Well, I'm worshiping, but uh, again, I'm thinking about the ball game, or I'm worried about what's going to face me tomorrow morning uh, when I get back to work, or I'm playing, but I'm feeling guilty for it, because really, I probably ought to be doing something more productive. We're not at all present where we are, so we're going to look at that model at how easily we can get out of balance and not have wealth or, or, or live well in any area, because we're we're playing at our work, we're working at our worship, <laughs> and we're worshiping, uh, uh, I'm sorry, we're worshiping our work, we are working at play, and we are playing around at our worship, so everything's out of balance. It's one of the talks we'll talk about uh, there on the cruise. Hey, absolutely. Well, it's going to be great. Uh, just looking at the pictures gets me excited here about what we're going to be experiencing. So if you have any interest in joining us, we'd love to talk to you. Chris Nehemiah is our cruise director. He can give you all the details on that. But if you just go again to 48days.com slash ultimate advantage cruise, you'll see all the details there. Hey, we're going to wrap it up here. Chris, thanks so much for being here with us in the studio to talk about this particular topic that I'm excited about. I know you've got a lot of wisdom to share. Thanks for being here. Mm, Dan, it's been a privilege. This life is meaningless These hours don't pay enough This work is just so tough I need to get away clock is ticking, so don't delay. It's gonna take your whole heart. It's gonna take all you've got.